The diagnosis of Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD, presents many unique challenges to both parents and caregivers alike. A wide range of tiny symptoms can manifest in many different ways. Getting a handle on a diagnosis and shaping a solidified treatment plan is often frustrating for families. Hello, I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan. On this edition of Pediatric Chat, we'll talk about the many facets of autism with a specialist in the field of ASD, and we'll hear some interesting information that might help to clear up some of the misconceptions people have about this condition. If you have a question about autism, we encourage you to send it to us through the question portal on our webpage so that we can review it and post a follow-up response. To help us with the discussion, I have my two co-hosts today, Dr. Paul Rosen from the Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children. Paul? Hey, Jay. Great to be here. And Carl Gartner, also from the Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children. Thanks, Jay. Today we have a very special expert guest, Dr. Laura Dewey. Thank you for coming to share with us your expertise in autism. And we're really interested to hear about this hot topic. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. All right. So first off, obviously, what do you do? I'm a pediatric psychologist, and I work in the Division of Behavioral Health at Nemours Alfred DuPont Hospital for Children. And I finished my training in Texas, actually. So this has been an adjustment to be in the North. And I've been here for about two years now. And it was really um, an initiative from Nemours that we were realizing we wanted to provide more services for families affected by autism. And so I had done my training in Texas and had a PhD and then really spent my fellowship specializing in autism, particularly in learning the standardized assessment tools and empirically validated interventions. And so it's been exciting to come here to Nemours and be able to share that with my colleagues in behavioral health and across the hospital in an interdisciplinary way. So you spend most of your time seeing kids with this autism problem? Absolutely. It's about, I would say, 80% of my week. And is that just here at the hospital or do you go out and do it elsewhere? Primarily here at the hospital, but part of the job that I have here is program development. So I have spent a lot of time working throughout Delaware and Pennsylvania and Maryland and New Jersey to understand what the resources are that are available because I think that's the number one thing I hear from families is, what do I do for my child? Not just a 100-page recommendation list, but what does my child need? Mm -hmm. So I feel like I do a lot of work of explaining that to families, and so a big piece of that is going out in the community and knowing what's there so I know what to give them. Tell us a little bit about what autism is. Autism at its at its core, the central piece is a social difficulty and it is an innate, pervasive social difficulty. And I, I explain often that children have social difficulties for a variety of reasons. But in autism, it is an inability to go back and forth, to have a reciprocal social relationship with someone else. Mm -hmm. And so that can look um, very different. You can have a two-year-old that is flapping and spinning in a corner with no words to a really engaging adolescent that enjoys social interactions, but at the end of the day really struggles with perspective taking. So the social difference is what autism is at its core, but it can look very different mm. for different children. It sounds like it's a lot of things, right? So there are the other, other names that have been given to this in the past? Absolutely. Well, I think that part of the confusion is that there are other symptoms that go along with autism. So at its core, there's the social difficulty. But we also see differences in communication. So we'll see unexpected language features, like repeating other people's language or using an unexpected tone or not being able to go back and forth. We also see rigidity. So children that really want things a certain way, really want things according to their agenda. And sometimes it can be really unusual, like developing an interest in doorknobs or making sure all of their toys are lined up. 
And those are what we call the core features. But oftentimes I have families that come in with what I talk about being peripheral symptoms of autism. So sensory concerns Mm. are one of those. So, oh, my child's overwhelmed by loud noises, or oh, my child doesn't always look at me, or oh, my child really can't attend in school. And so I talk about parents as those um, being peripheral, that kind of fall around autism. But that core piece is really the social piece. But I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from, are all of the different tiny symptoms that can pop up in autism. When's the earliest age that you start to see kids for this? So I think it depends on the severity level of autism. There are absolutely young children that are that are babies. We're talking six months old that we can really see differences in overall engagement. So parents will say that they're aloof. They're not interested in looking at me. They're in their own world. And we can actually make a diagnosis as young as 12 months mm. of age. We can see some of these really striking social differences. But that's not true for every child. There are also children that we really see problems emerge school age, that they really just aren't following the teacher's instructions and they look really oppositional and defiant but really they don't understand they need to sit still and complete their worksheet and turn it in and so then we might catch those children later that are higher functioning developed language and social interest earlier is it just one diagnosis or do you as a professional in this give it lots of different subtypes and other things like that so we hear this question a lot from families one of the questions i hear is what happened to asperger's disorder um and In May of 2013, the American Academy of Psychiatrics came out with their newest diagnostic manual. And what they did is they combined several different disorders that parents have heard of before. So before May of 2013, we talked about autistic disorder, we talked about Asperger's disorder, we talked about PDD-NOS, which is a pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. But what our research has shown is that when children are itty-bitty, we don't know what they're going to look like when they're adults. Mm -hmm. So the distinction of autistic disorder and Asperger's disorder ended up not being useful because of all the varying trajectories that happen with young children. So the research showed that was not useful. So in the most recent manual, we have dropped the other smaller categories and we refer to a single diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder or ASD. And we talk about there being areas of strength and weakness within ASD. But at the end of the day, that core social difference is what holds the spectrum together. And we certainly see a lot of it now. Yes. More than ever. Yes. What is that all about? I think there are several ways to answer that question. I think that that's something that um, parents are really afraid of. They're afraid that autism is getting to be more and more prevalent. I think there's a couple different things that are happening. I think that we are making the diagnosis earlier and better. So I think that we are doing a lot better job of seeing autism. I think that we are also including the higher functioning children in the spectrum. So we're catching children that 15, 20 years ago would have simply just been quirky or weird. We're now realizing there's this innate social difference. And then I think that it is probably going up. But we can't separate all of those different factors out. So we don't know how much it's going up. We don't know why it would be going up. But it's probably going up a little bit. Probably not as drastically as we hear because of the improvements in the diagnosis Mm. and labeling. But it likely might be on the rise as well. Is it common that they come to you always? Or there must be many pathways to the diagnosis. There are lots of specialties in pediatrics. Absolutely. So if, for instance, if someone is worried about something, uh, is not quite right, um, they could go to a neurologist or developmental specialist or a psychologist or psychiatrist. And where's the field going with that? Do you know? Yes. And I think that's very frustrating for families because they have a concern and they're 
depending on who you talk with, you can end up in many, many different places. And so there has been a concerted effort in the field to really be considering these children from the framework of a medical home model to where someone like a pediatrician could identify the child, but then rather jumping between specialties and maybe seeing a psychologist and then a developmental pediatrician and then a neurologist and then a speech therapist, is how do we identify the children early and then have a coordinated approach to where we can have all of the disciplines working together Mm -hmm. to really reduce the burden on families of trying to make several appointments of the process taking two or three years. Mm. And so um, there has been a lot of, of research coming out on how do we make a medical home model work. Mm -hmm. But it's something I think families are very interested in. They really appreciate when their providers can communicate and come up with a solidified treatment plan. And you sort of talked a little bit about it, but do we know what causes this? We don't right now. And that's something that I often tell families is it's not the one time you ate sushi when you were pregnant, that there is something genetic. There's a genetic piece. And we know that because we know that the incidence is higher in siblings and in families. It's still not up to 50%. So I always tell families, it's not 50-50, your next child will have autism. But there is some genetic component. But then there's probably a million or a billion environmental things that happen that really switch the genes on and make the child have autism. Mm. And right now, there's no way to backtrack and pinpoint the one or two things that might have happened. So I just have to add, as an old timer, um, I knew Leo Kanner's work, but yeah. at, at one point it was blamed on mothers, and I think it's clear from Absolutely. what you said. How much, how much of that do you see when parents come in, do they blame themselves for this? You know, I think it's something that has really probably changed in the yeah. last 10 or 15 years. Um, I think that traditionally, especially when autism was first recognized, there is this theory of the refrigerator mother, mm-hmm. uh, that you just weren't warm and empathic with children. And I actually do not see that concern in parents as much anymore, but I see the concern of I did something during pregnancy, that they're looking for the environmental or the genetic link versus something that they might have done. But there is still a huge feeling of guilt in families, and I think that that has persisted despite the changes in name and diagnosis. Laura, is it typically the parent that brings the concern to the pediatrician, or is it sometimes a teacher, or how do they pursue this question, does my child have... ASD. That's a really great question. I think it can come from all of the above. In my experience, parents usually know. There's usually a gut feeling, and I think that parents are usually right. But I think it goes both ways. I think they can be very defensive and have a really hard time in seeing that in their child. And they see all of the strengths, which is what a parent should be doing for their child. But then they're hearing their pediatrician and their mother and their neighbor say something, and it's slowly building. And then I also see it the other way where the parent knows, they just know something is off, but it takes four or five years to have a provider really listen and take that concern seriously. So I kind of see, I feel like all ends of the spectrum. So what you're saying is sometimes, you mean like a parent might have a blind spot in terms of just because it's their own child and, and, um, and, and sort of getting, recognizing it sooner? Or? Absolutely, I think that, that an autism diagnosis and treatment, it's a journey. We think of autism as being lifelong. And I think that's the really hard part for, for the family. So they see the strengths. So they see the times a child does make eye contact, the child does come up and share, the time they do well with friends. And so they often can use that to justify some of the weaknesses that are there. And I think that it is so understandable as a parent that it is your job to see your child's strengths. And so I think that autism in particular is a scarier diagnosis for families because of the lifelong implications and that we don't have a good way to make a prognosis for children. Until a child's about five or six, there's still an empty slate. And I try to tell parents, I know that's a double-edged sword, 
there's every reason to be hopeful because we don't know what they're going to be able to achieve. But then that uncertainty is really hard as well, to not know what your life is going to be like in 10 or 15 years. So as an expert, as we're talking about the diagnosis um, and what causes it really at this point, you know, you must have friends come up to you and say, I just had a baby, and what should I do? What should I avoid to prevent my child from getting this very scary problem for them? Absolutely. And, and by the way, you know, we, we'd be remiss in not bringing up the immunization issue. So yep. that, that's been out there. And so what do you say to families that are looking to prevent autism? So I would say that there is really nothing you can do to prevent it. So if you have a baby, you have to love the baby and, and do everything with the baby that, that you would, assuming that the child doesn't have autism. And so one thing we know is that vaccines do not cause autism. We have not been able to find any, any link between vaccines and autism. I think the hard part is that when autism shows up, is often between 12 and two years of age. I think a lot of things are going on with development at that point. I think oftentimes families have another child and they start making comparisons and realizing that things are looking different. And so I think it just happens to fall around the same time that there are a lot of immunizations. But all of our best research shows that there is no link. So what I would tell the, the, those families is more just to be vigilant. You don't have to be overly vigilant, but to, to make sure that your child does look at you and laugh and smile and that they like to play social games, that they can follow your eye gaze when you're looking at something. And that those are some of the biggest things to be looking at when the child is a baby. And so there wouldn't be anything different to do, but making sure that they're still meeting milestones. Just as a question, uh, and I appreciate your comments about immunizations, which is a very sensitive issue for us pediatricians, but is there an average time between when you see a family, the beginning of symptoms when you go back, till they actually seek, um, seek professional advice? Is it several months? Is it months and months? Is it a year or two years? In other words, before the, when you talk to the parents, say, I was worried about my child at six or seven months, and they're three now, and they're bringing them to you. Is there any average time delay? A- absolutely. I think right now our average diagnosis is around four years, uh, four, uh, four years old, that that's when sh- most uh-huh. children are getting a diagnosis. And that is very scary when we think of there are so many we have ways to do to make a diagnosis when a child is 12 months but i do think that it, it's a scary heavy diagnosis to make and so i think that there is that everyone would like to wait and see and would like to sit and let the child develop and i appreciate that perspective because it um it I think it makes everyone feel a little bit better and we do want the child to develop and we don't and we do want to see where they go but what we do know is that the earlier we get services, the better the outcome. Mm. So at the end of the day, I would rather be wrong. I would rather call this wrong in a 12-month-old child and have them get every possible service. And then when they're five, if we don't need the label anymore and we got it wrong, I'm okay with that. But I don't want to go the other way. You're about to get flooded with patients, I think. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> well, one follow-up question. I don't. Do you recommend uh, – so, again, pediatricians. Absolutely. Um, do you recommend any particular tool that should be used in the office situation to pick up the findings? Any, is there a screening test that would be very helpful for office family docs and pediatricians to use? Absolutely. The one that we see most frequently used and has the most research is the MCHAT. And it's something that right now is recommended to be given at 18 months. However, what the American Academy of Pediatrics says, if there's a concern from the parent or from the pediatrician, so from either from either side, you can of course give the screening measure younger. Um, 
we are also developing more and more screening measures that can be used at younger time frames. And so that's something that we're working on within behavioral health and with Nemours is to really encourage pediatricians in Delaware to screen earlier because there are tools that can be used earlier, even though that's not technically the guideline. We can do screening at 12 months that is fairly reliable and we can be getting children in earlier. So we have a child that mom's suspicious, dad's suspicious, they come to you, what do you do? I think it works different depending on, on where you go. If they come and see me, what I first want to do is get some good information from them about what their concerns are. And again, and I always tell parents, I would rather see you and tell you there there is nothing wrong or there's a developmental delay in this one area. I have no problem seeing you. So I always encourage families to come. But if we're concerned and we think an evaluation would be helpful, then what we'll do is we'll schedule a more thorough evaluation that has autism-specific tools. And so we only have one that has a direct observation component. It's called the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. And it looks a lot like plain, but what it is is it gives every child the same opportunity to respond in a social way. And so the parents are in the room, it's an interactive tool, and it has really been shown to pick up on behaviors that are deviant in children that have autism versus a typically developing Mm -hmm. child. Now, the ADOS is not something that can be used in isolation, and I think that can be confusing for families. I'll get calls, oh, well, we just need an ADOS, when really the diagnosis of autism at the end of the day is a clinical judgment call that takes in all of the information from the family, considers the child's overall development or a cognitive ability IQ score, as well as their language. And so the ADOS, while it's a great tool, is simply a tool in the diagnostic process. And I sometimes feel like that's an easier road for families. The harder part is, okay, well, what do we do? What do we do now that we have the diagnosis? And I think in some ways families are too flooded with information. So they can get a 100-page toolkit from Autism Speaks, and they can go to Autism Delaware, and they have a whole, so many great resources, but there's just so much there. And so what I have really seen families coming to us for is more of a resource coordination. But what does my child need? Where is the best fit for my child? Not just 15 behavior intervention places to call. Which one works for our family? And so a lot of what we end up doing with families is trying to help a good treatment plan get put in place. By the way, how long does that test take? Is it a day or? You... It, um, the, the ADOS itself is 45 minutes to oh. an hour. And, but usually the testing day will vary on how old and how verbal the child is. So if we have an 18-month-old in that's not very verbal, we'll do some brief developmental and language screening and are usually done in about two hours. Mm-hmm. For an eight-year-old that we're worried about, we might be doing more five hours of testing where we can really look at academics, we can look at emotional and behavioral function, we can look at cognitive ability. Um, and so it can, it'll vary depending on the child and what their abilities are. And do you see kids that are older, uh, teenagers, that they're worried about this late, or is it really just in this younger age group? Absolutely. And some of the teenagers, some of the favorite, my favorite ones to see that come through because they have done really well for most, most of their life. And I think with the increased awareness that families are starting to realize, wow, maybe there is something more that we can do for my 16-year-old that is really struggling socially. And so I absolutely see older families coming in. And sometimes those are the more exciting families to see in a way because they have such a different perspective than I think the the young families coming through. In a lot of cases, I talk to those families about, you know, you're the success story. You you are the family that has a child that is doing well, that has made it through school all of these years, that is on track to go to college. This is a success story. Do we still want to have a quote-unquote label for weaknesses that could really assist you all in moving forward? Sure, I think that would be helpful. But at the end of the day, 
your child has done an incredible job. Your family has done an incredible job. That's great. That's great news. I know just in terms of, well, still on diagnostics, the other big thing in your field is attention deficit. Yes. Right? And so is there overlap and what's the difference and how does a parent know when to worry about what? I think, again, it's the social piece that really makes autism. And that's what an evaluation does is trying to understand is our social difficulties coming because a child is inattentive and impulsive and in other people's space or the social difficulties coming because they aren't able to take someone's perspective and understand social norms. But it can be very confusing. And that's a question that we see come up a lot. And I think that at the end of the day, children that have ADHD tend to have a lot of social strengths. They, they end up being often immature and ineffective socially, but they enjoy being around other people. They're the kids that are tapping the other kids in class, or they get really excited about recess and lunch. And we see almost the opposite in the kids that have autism, that lunch and recess are the stressful times, the more unstructured mm. times are stressful, that they do better when they're on their own. And so that is one of the things that we're really looking at. But it is it is hard to pair that apart because if you have social difficulties, you look inattentive at the end of the day. Just thinking like a parent, um, do you have anything that you recommend? You know, Because parents are, over, as you said earlier, are overwhelmed with Absolutely. information. And we all know that there are... Um, good places and bad places as mm -hmm. far as websites where they can get good information. Do you, um, I mean, people talk about all kinds of things that may or may not be related to autism. Do you have any place you send them if you specifically to get more information? Absolutely. There, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually has an, a really incredible toolkit. And it's something that's readily available to families. You can actually go on go on Amazon and Google American Academy of Pediatrics Autism, and they have this handout, like what, what every parent needs to know, or it's like a little book or a pamphlet. Um, we have all of those resources here. So I'm often printing off these one or two page handouts for families about various questions that families will have. And um, I think that's one of the best resources to go to. Autism Speaks is another one. I think it can be a little bit overwhelming of a website, but they, they have a, f a lot of, of good information there. And if you can take a little bit of time to kind of pair through it, that's another one that has a lot of really great information. And as we're talking about diagnostics, two questions. And first I'll start with, how often do kids come to you and they don't have it? They're parents are worried and they're, you just say, not in this case. And, and is it something else or is it just normal, generally? I would say at least a third hmm. do not end up having an autism hmm. diagnosis. I think that in some ways it has become a safe diagnosis for some families. So we've talked a lot about the parent that where this diagnosis is hard and it's scary and it's frightening. But we see this other set of parents where I feel like they're, they're looking for an answer to a really complicated child. And so in some ways an autism diagnosis would be a relief. Mm. It, would, it would be an organizing way to see a various symptoms. And these are often the kids that are moody and emotional. And I often will talk to parents about they have this emotional soup. They don't have the same amount of, of, of armor, if you will, as other people. And little things set them off. They frustrate easily. And we don't have a good way to capture that from a psychological standpoint, that when people get to be adults, we can call it, oh, it's anxiety oh, it's depression. But in children, it can just be very overwhelming for families. And so oftentimes they're looking for an autism diagnosis because of the behavior difficulties that are coming through. But again, autism is not, um, it's a social disorder. It's not a behavioral disorder. And so with those families, a lot of it is helping them understand what is unique about their child and trying to help them treatment plan around the emotional difficulties, that the autism diagnosis isn't going to change their child or make things different. 
but what can we call it and how do we get services? Right, so there's still things to do, it's just not autism. Absolutely, I would right. say, I, to be very honest, very rarely do I see a family and we there is not anything that is going on because usually if a parent has a concern, parents are usually right by the time they get to me. They they know something is wrong. Not that it doesn't happen. They're, I've absolutely sent the worried well parent away. Um, but oftentimes there's something else that could be going on that's explaining the difficulties. And I would say that at least a third of the families I see end up not having an autism diagnosis. And then the other thing I hear parents concerned about, and sometimes they go through different channels to get to this, is that they're worried about something even worse going on with their child who's not acting well. So is there something wrong with the brain? And I think mm -hmm. if you would go to a neurologist, they would do an MRI right away. Mm -hmm. In your experience, is there, uh, is there a necessary workup? Can you sort of screen that away just by talking to someone? Or is there some basic stuff? That, do you have them see a neurologist, for instance, often? For every child that gets an autism diagnosis, the, what the American Academy of Pediatric recommends is a visit with a neurologist or a developmental pediatrician because there are so many comorbid medical issues that can be going on. I know seizures are one that parents are often very worried about. Sometimes it's not the first thing that a parent wants to go and do, like they know their child's not having seizures, they might be 16, have been functioning well for a long time, but we ha strongly, strongly encourage having the medical workup done um, that is often a neurologist or a developmental pediatrician. Mm -hmm. The other thing that every family should do is visit with, with a geneticist. And the reason for that is there is about five to 10% of autism that is explained by a very specific gene that we have nailed down. So I tell parents, you know, an 85% chance you're going to walk into a geneticist's office, they're going to do this whole workup, and they're going to tell you, we found nothing, there's nothing else going on. But if you are in that 5 to 10%, we need to know that because it can help with family planning, can also help with syndromes. And so there might be medical complications that go along with autism, especially heart defects and other things that could rally around the autism symptoms. Mm. And so we want every family to see a neurologist or and a geneticist um, to have a complete medical workup. Oftentimes it doesn't lead to anything for families, but it's still a really important component. Very important information. But but you would probably go to an autism specialist first and have them referred to, to that person. Or do you guys work as a team? I think this is where the idea of having a medical home really mm -hmm. comes in because it, it's, I think it's different for every child. There are some that might have you know huge feeding difficulties, that that's the number one thing that parents are concerned about. So we might want to rush the medical piece on them even faster than getting an IQ test on them. Mm -hmm. But if a child is really struggling behaviorally and has no language, then maybe we do need to have the psychological piece done first. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, that right now, starting with your pediatrician is absolutely the best place to start. And then hopefully we'll have a more coordinated approach or medical home approach where we can individualize what the treatment path is for each family. That all pieces need to be done, but I think the priorities can be different depending and, on And the by the concerns. way, we hear very high instances of autism spectrum in, you know, in the literature or the, you know, the news. What, what's the going rate now that you like to quote? The, the best research we have is from the CDC, and that is one in 88. Mm -hmm. And I think that was from 2012. Mm. They more recently did a phone survey. Um, I think it was about a year ago now, and so it wasn't the same research rigor as the original one in 88. But whenever they asked families via telephone, has your child had an autism diagnosis? The answer to that survey was one in 50. So I think that one in 88 is still the best research number, but you will absolutely hear lower even, or an even higher incidence than that, such as the one in 50 that the CDC found. Laura, one of the 
issues I, I, I assume would come up when you diagnose a four-year-old or five-year-old is the school issue. Do you guide the family or, or give them advice in terms of what kind of school situation the child sh- should be in? Absolutely. It is. Um, I think that is one of the most frustrating questions I get from a family because there's a difference between a medical diagnosis of autism and an educational classification. So they could have all these great medical workups. We could call this autism and they could go to their school and show all of these reports and the school could say, well, we're looking at how these symptoms impact your child educationally, and we are not seeing these symptoms causing educational impact, and we are not going to give you an educational classification of autism. And I think for families, that's very frustrating, that schools and medical providers, that the, the terminology does not cross um, the way that we would like it to. And then often there tends to be these two streams of diagnoses that have to happen both medically and through the school system. And I know that is very overwhelming and frustrating for families. I think typically those schools want to help, and they have really great autism programs. And so I think when a family can advocate for their child, and there are some great school advocacy resources on Autism Speaks. They have um, these great IEP guides for families. Once they know how to start advocating, schools typically jump on board, and they have a lot of really great ways to modify the educational environment to help children succeed. So it sounds like if you're a parent and, and you know you have a child with this diagnosis, a lot of your time is going to be spending as a parent advocating for your child with the school, with the healthcare complex, and you're supporting them. But it seems like there's a lot of phone, email, uh, paperwork that the mother or father caregiver has to take on for themselves. Absolutely. And I think that's the other benefit if we were to really have a coordinated medical home model is that there's the idea that there can be a resource coordinator for families because it becomes basically a full-time job, especially with little kids when we're recommending 25 to 40 hours a week of behavior-based interventions. Well, basically your child has a full-time job and you might have a full-time job and how do you coordinate all of this and make this work? And I think that's a a big concern for families and something that they, um, it's it's a big struggle. And I, I would imagine this would have a huge economic impact on a family. So maybe if you have two parents work, do you find that one parent stops working in order to take on this role? Or It definitely depends on the family circumstances. And luckily, if children are identified by their school, they are getting a significant portion of intervention in school. And so I think that tends to be a big help. And I remind families that if we're going to throw resources at the difficulty, we need to do it before they're five, because that's when we have the most hope to make improvements. So I was thinking, you said earlier that it's around age four is kind of the average time. So if we did a better job of screening and could pick up children earlier, significantly earlier, and you said the MCHAT or whatever, what interventions earlier and could you try? And then would it, does there any evidence that it would make a difference if if we started therapy of some sort earlier? Absolutely. So we... What the the gold standard for treatment is, um, we call it early intervention or behavior-based intervention. Sometimes it's called ABA or applied behavior analysis, but essentially what treatment would look like is expanding social engagement. So if the child wants a cookie, before we give them the cookie, that we have to make eye contact with us and maybe approximate cookie, and then we can give them a cookie. And if we can teach parents how to do this, we can create a therapeutic environment all day so that everything a child is doing has a social component to it. This is also how we can get language to get on board. This is how we can also help with toilet training. And so this behavior-based intervention is the number one thing that we want to see. And we absolutely know the earlier we start it, the better. And I think if we can get the diagnosis done earlier, then we can start identifying places 
to get this type of intervention and move forward for families in that way. Are there other treatments that you commonly use? How often does a parent have to bring their child in to participate in a treatment, or is it really just school-based? So often schools are using a behavior-based approach, um, but I often tell families to supplement. And so they will, um, they'll often identify a behavior-based therapy provider, and it could be six to 10 hours a week with that provider. If their family does not want to enroll them in school, they could be doing up to 40 hours a week mm. of, of treatment with a provider. And a lot of it is, um, it's best when it's in the home environment, when it's something that you're really kind of emphasizing that social flexibility mm. and expanding the child's social interests. Um, that's the number one thing that we can do. Oftentimes we do supplement with speech therapy, um, especially to get language on board, occupational therapy, especially when children are having fine motor concerns or mm. toilet training concerns or sensory concerns. But I, again, I talk about those as being kind of peripheral to that behavior-based piece that was the number one thing we know is gonna make an improvement, especially before a child is five or six. So it really is a large team effort to get this child on the road. Absolutely, absolutely. And what's the outcome usually? What is success in this treatment? That's always a difficult question to answer for, for parents. What we know of um, is that intellectual ability, or IQ, is one of the number one predictors of a functional outcome for these children. And we don't have a good gauge of that until a child's about five or six. And so until then, I say it's kind of fair game. But our most recent estimates are about 50% of children that have autism are not going to have an average IQ. In fact, they will probably be falling into what we used to call the mentally retarded range or an intellectual disability range. That's about half of the children that we see. But for the other half that have either a below average or average IQ, or in some cases a really superior IQ, the outcomes can be a lot better. And so I tell parents that it is absolutely possible for children to be in a mainstream classroom when they get older, to live independently, to find a job and a niche that they can really excel in. And so I think that that is, that is one area of success, and I think that's the success area that parents hope for. But I also think that there are children that are very impaired when they are younger that really make good improvements from through a caring family, caring healthcare system, through their school. And they might not be functionally independent when they're older, but their quality of life is so much better than it could have been without interventions. And those are the most inspiring families that I see, that they know that their child might never live independently, but they have a GED or a high school diploma that they're able to get through school. They might not have talked until they were seven, but through persistence, they have language on board now. And they are going to have a high quality of life in the future. Is it going to be typical? Are they going to live independently and have a job and get married? Maybe not. But they are functional and have grown in a way that we would not have predicted hmm. when they were two or three. And those are some of the most inspiring families that I see. And I guess the schools, uh, since it's 1 in 50 to 1 in 85, they're getting pretty good at this, right? They are. They're slowly getting better, absolutely. What's your interaction with them, and how, how do we help as a medical community the schools? And what do parents need to know about their school? I think that one of the biggest things we can do for school is to help with the, with the diagnosis process. Often school wants to do their own assessment as well. Mm. But I do think that they, they don't have to listen to us by law, but I think they do. I think they do value what a medical provider says. I also think that we can help tailor interventions. So a lot of times um, a school will come up with an IEP plan or basically a plan of accommodations. And it's hard for families to know if these are working or if these are the right things that a school should be doing. And so I think having an open dialogue with school can be very helpful because different perspectives can really help shift where the treatment is going to go. 
And do you have parents come to you because they've been tested in school, but they don't believe the results or they want a second opinion? And how do they usually go? Absolutely. I definitely have students that have been tested in school and parents are wondering about the diagnosis. Um, I always explain to parents that we don't want to be repeating tests. So if we're doing objective standardized assessment like an IQ score or an ADOS, those are not going to change. But what we can do is we can look at the full picture of the child, take in all of the information, talk with the family, talk with the school, and make sure that our clinical judgment is in line with the school. Um, Typically, I have agreed with the school, to be very honest, which I think is great. I, I love when I can look at what school says and say, yes, I'm seeing the same thing. Um, occasionally, it goes a different way, and often those are the really complex kids that usually are re- very medically complicated or have a lot of language difficulties, and school just doesn't have a better category. And oftentimes, school will tell me, yeah, I don't think this is truly autism, but I don't know where else to put him. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we can help clarify that conundrum for schools as well. So as with any major diagnosis uh, in children, parents are really susceptible to trying a lot of different things to help their children. So the things we docs hear about are gluten-free diets, uh, casein-free diets, dimethylglycine, things like that. Do you have any response to this? Because those are the kind of questions we get asked sometimes in the office. Absolutely. And I I think that you know, when we are recommending behavior-based intervention at 25 to 40 hours a week, that is overwhelming. And I absolutely appreciate a parent thinking, I want to try everything. If there is some magic cure out there for my child, I need to know that. I need to go down every avenue. And so with that being said, we do know from research what works. And we know behavior interventions work. We know things that may or may not work. Those tend to be more sensory interventions as well as some basic dietary changes like gluten-free or casein-free. They're not evidence-based, but sometimes they might work. And then we know things that do not work. And one of those would be something called chelation, which is essentially modern-day bloodletting. We know that that is actually detrimental and harmful to children. So what I often tell parents is I have never seen a magic cure. If I had a child, I would want to do what I know works, and that would be getting the behavior-based intervention on board, no questions asked. And when it comes to something like diet, gluten-free, casein-free, our our research is based on what's called a meta-analysis, which means that we look at all of these different studies, and the overall outcome of all of these studies is there's no change, there's no effect. But that doesn't mean that there might not be some children within this study that had an improvement. So if you're a parent, I would say if it's something that is as benign as something like a diet change that I, you know, we all feel different if we drink a soda and we don't drink a soda, that you could make a small change under the guidance of your pediatrician and do your own mini experiment and see so you can feel like you're trying something. But don't be overly committed to it. If you do this for two weeks and your whole family's mad because they can't eat the pizza that they want and your child's behavior isn't that better, then it's fine. Then you tried it and you can let it go. But I always tell families to do that in guidance with their pediatrician or a medical provider because we don't want to be getting into um, nutrient deficiencies in any way. And to go into it in the right frame of mind, that the, the research says that this won't work. But if it's something that's relatively benign for your family and you need to try it, then I can appreciate that desire. But let's just do it in the right way and in a smart way. Well, Laura, uh, this has been really educational for me. Um, Uh, It's a fantastic uh, field you're in. I know you're doing a lot of good for a lot of people. Um, 
the take-home message for me is, and correct me if I'm wrong, so it's, it's a very common diagnosis, autism spectrum disorder. Yep. Can be confusing and challenging, uh, can be complicated, should be a team-based approach. Uh, for diagnosis, but parents should know there's nothing they did to cause it. Just being a loving mom is the best we can do, and that's what parents are. So it's not something they've done, but it's something we want them to pick up early. And so they, mm-hmm. when they suspect something, to call you or, or, or a provider that can help to diagnose this early because treatment, early treatment is important. Absolutely. It's and, a great summary. And we want to move that up uh, a little bit uh, in terms of the treatment. But the treatment is a, is a universe of treatment from the schools to the community to the home to you and your team. And um, hopefully we can move them to the best they can be. Any other parting words for families? Uh, I hate asking that question. It always puts a lot of pressure on providers, but uh, anything I missed? Well, I, I always remind families that a diagnosis doesn't change your child. Your child is still the same regardless of whether or not they have an autism diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And the same child you came in with is the child you're leaving. So everything you love about that child, all of their strengths are still there. It is just a label that explains weaknesses that will hopefully help us get services. And other than that, you just get to be a loving parent to a perfect child because they are just the way that they're supposed to be. So that's great information. And I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Paul. Thanks, Jay. And Carl. Thank you, Jay. And especially Dr. Laura Dewey, whose insights on this hot topic of autism spectrum disorder has been very timely and important for all of us. To our listeners, if you have a question about this topic, or if there's another topic you'd like us to explore in a future pediatric chat, you can send it to us by using the question portal on our webpage. And be sure to view our library for more pediatric chat programs. I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan, and thanks for listening.